welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. It was a common theme that I encountered growing up in the Christian environment that I did. Uh, it's a common theme in presentations and films and sermons and dramatizations. The setting is, of course, university science classroom. The drama. A lone Christian student standing up and debating her atheist science professor on the existence of God. And at least in all the presentations and films and dramatizations and sermons that I heard growing up, amazingly enough, the student always won that debate. And the challenge that always followed this scenario was, will you have the courage to stand up for your beliefs in front of the challenges of modern secular science? So needless to say, I was apprehensive as I uh, got ready to enter the engineering program at the University of California, San Diego, wondering to myself if I would have the courage when the time came to stand up in front of a professor in the middle of his or her lecture and say, no, no, you're wrong. There, there is too a God. Well, lucky for me, I never had the opportunity to find out. Because, of course, those of you who know me at all know for a fact that there is no way in the world I was ever going to stand up in the middle of somebody else's lecture and stop the lecture and say, no, no, wait, there there is a God. See, over the course of the many years that I was in college, I studied physics, I studied astronomy, I studied chemistry, I studied electricity, I studied tons and tons and tons of math. But here's the thing. Never in any of those classes did any of my professors come anywhere close to making the statement, there is no God. Not once. And not because my professors were all Christians, by the way. Far from it, actually. I mean, anybody takes a look at the kind of tests and assignments that they made us do. I mean, no God-fearing person anywhere would make anybody go through that. But in reality, through my studies, the more I learned about how the universe worked, the reality was the deeper my confidence in and frankly my admiration for God actually grew. I mean, I'll never forget the day I opened up our textbook for planetary physics. It was a class. And I just flipped open to a picture of Saturn and its rings and the bright blue surface of Neptune that were taken by the Voyager space probe, which it's so cool that we actually did send space probes and they're out there. And that just is amazing in and of itself. But to look at these pictures, not far away like, you know, reproductions of what it might look like or not blown up from, but actually like pictures that were taken from really close up, I mean, 100,000 kilometers, but you know, like, relatively speaking, these are really 
close of pictures. When I studied the findings and the theorems and the laws of guys like Newton and Maxwell and Laplace and Schrodinger, and I was just in awe of a universe that worked so well, so perfectly together, that was sustained by the ongoing support and power of its creator. I'd regularly find myself in the middle of this, you know, secular university lecture, worshiping God, quietly, of course, because, you know, heaven forbid I interrupt somebody's, like, lecture in the middle of what they were saying. And so when we first started uh, talking about this series and, and, and we talked about this topic, I, I actually kind of jumped on this topic. I really wanted to talk about this. Not because I consider myself some kind of a scientist or someone that is up on all the latest discoveries and theories of science. Actually, far from it. Since I graduated, I have set the books on the shelf and they look really pretty right there. And that's all I need to hear about them. But really, I want to talk about this because over the years, both in my own life and the lives of countless students that I've talked with and frankly people, both young and old, I see a struggle, a battle that has pit science against faith that regularly demands that we make a choice. What are you going to base your life on? Are you going to base your life on science or faith? And it's not just us religious folks that are picking the fight, by the way. Uh, type science versus religion in your YouTube search bar. And you'll find secular thinkers, of course, such as Carl Sagan and Richard Dawkins and Neil deGrasse Tyson that are giving their two cents alongside the myriad of Christian apologists as well. Some, such as biologist and author James Coyne, uh, did in his book, Faith Versus Fact. They will argue that faith and science have always been at odds and that there cannot and that there should not be any accommodation between the two. Coyne warns that there is a great danger, he'll say, of making the most important decisions about the world we live in based on faith rather than on science. Neil deGrasse Tyson, similarly in his article he called The Perimeter of Ignorance, argues that religious faith is harmful to scientific progress. It impedes discovery. It dooms the society that follows it to not be able to compete in the world's marketplace of ideas or economy. And to support his argument, he, refer, he re, goes on to refer to various times in history that he deemed that religious faith actually hindered scientific discovery, scientific advancement. But you see, the trouble with these allusions to some fundamental conflict between the rigorous practice of science and an equally rigorous faith in God is that in actuality, they're just not true. James Hainan uh, wrote an article uh, for The Guardian where he goes on to show that in regard to the relationship between science and religion, historically speaking, he says the historical record clearly shows that accommodation and even cooperation have been the default positions in the relationship between science and religious faith. And the reason for this lack of conflict is pretty simple. 
In their purest forms, in their most authentic forms, science and religious faith, they just operate on different planes. You see, science only deals with things that it can observe and measure, test and confirm. The scientific method relies on observation, hypothesis, experiment in controlled environments that result in independently verifiable conclusions. To arrive at a scientific conclusion, you have to be able to put something under a microscope, subject it to a particular set of conditions or circumstance, and have it react in observably predictable ways. Religious faith, on the other hand, deals with God. And God, by definition, is spirit, which is unobservable. He is also uncontainable and therefore cannot be subject to any kind of experimental observation. He does not perform on command and therefore cannot be compelled to respond to a set of test conditions or circumstances. C.S. Lewis describes the situation this way in his uh, 1942 book, Mere Christianity. He writes, ever since men were able to think, they have been wondering what this universe really is and how it came to be there. And very roughly, two, two views have been held. First, there is what is called the materialist view. The other view is the Religious view. Please do not think, he writes, that one of these views was held a long time ago and that the other one has gradually taken its place. Wherever there have been thinking men, these two views turn up. And note this too. You cannot find out which view is the right one by science. Science works by experiments. It watches how things behave. The statement that there is any such thing and the statement that there is no such thing are neither of them statements that science can make. And real scientists do not usually make them. You see, the truth is that science cannot make statements about God because he falls outside of its field of study. And it is a gross misuse of the scientific method to observe that let's say a bug adapts to its environment by looking like a stick or, or to calculate the age of a particular rock to be 10 million years old or to discover the fossilized remains of a Mosasaurus. And from those observations go on to conclude, well, obviously there is no God. It's the same when it comes to miracles. Science cannot disprove a miracle because, again, as Lewis points out, a miracle, by definition, is an event that does not follow the regular order and laws of nature. Which is what science studies. Science can no more disprove a miracle than an economist can disprove a cookbook. But, before we get too far in congratulating ourselves about how atheists have misused science to support and bolster their point of view, we have to admit, that we Christians have made the same mistake. You see, ever since the Enlightenment, many in the Christian movement have sought to use scientific discoveries to bolster 
the credibility of the Bible by attempting to verify some of the details of the biblical narrative, which really sounds like a noble endeavor motivated by a high view of Scripture and confidence in the truth of its teachings. But it makes the mistake of then reducing the teachings of the Bible to the data that can be confirmed or denied by the scientific method. It reduces the message of the Bible to static facts and ultimately places the Bible under the authority of the ever-evolving claims of science. You see, scientific findings are constantly being challenged and amended based on new discoveries, based on new developments. Conclusions are constantly being revisited. This is the scientific method. This is what science does. Rigorous criticism, rigorous challenging of assumptions, and even, you know, long-held conclusions. That's part of the scientific process. So if our faith is based on some scientific underpinning of the facts of the narrative of Scripture. Well, our faith will either be in constant flux or we will find ourselves perpetually having to argue that some scientific conclusion is wrong, which, for most of us, we're not really qualified to do. But of course, the question does arise then, What do we do? What do we do when scientific consensus contradicts or does not support facts in the biblical record? What do we tell our kids about, say, the seven-day creation process described in Genesis chapter 1, or the Noahic flood, or Jonah in the whale? And these questions are important questions for those of us that, of course, grew up in a Christian culture that argued vehemently that if you don't trust Genesis 7-day creation story, well then, you have no reason to trust Jesus' death on the cross for your salvation. Essentially saying that if you don't hold to a strict 7-day creation narrative, you're going to hell. This question is also extremely important as we seek to engage a culture that accepts the scientific consensus as fact and would view a claim to the factual accuracy of the narratives of Scripture the same way they would view a claim that says the earth is flat. You see, when we talk about this stuff, and we consider the dialogue between the facts of the narrative of Scripture and scientific findings, it's not just the traditional Christian faith that we're defending. It also includes the future faith of those who we are trying to reach. And obviously, I am neither qualified, nor if I was, do I have the time to go line by line through the various debates between the scientific uh, consensus and the biblical narrative. But I think there is a basic principle that Jesus teaches us that helps us navigate some of these debates. There's a story in the Gospels uh, that is told where the Pharisees come to Jesus with one of the, from their perspective, irreconcilable antagonisms of their day. It was the apparent conflict between paying taxes to Caesar and faithfulness to God. 
And to this antagonism, Jesus responds with the iconic statement, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And I think that that approach applies to science as well. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to take that principle and say, well, let science do its job and let the Bible do its job. The job of science is to observe, to arrive at conclusions based on observations. Are the conclusions that science arrives to always correct? Of course not. Does science have a mechanism to self-correct and self-regulate? In general, yes. Remember, science used to believe that the best way to treat someone with a fever was to slice their arm open and let all the blood run out. Thankfully, science is self-corrected in that area. And when we do that, when we let science do science, make its observations, comes to its conclusions, dive deep into the realities of the material universe that we live in, it will lead us to a greater appreciation and worship and wonder of God. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. And, and, and that was written by someone who only saw the moon and the stars and the clouds and the sun from afar, like points of light in the sky. When you look at a picture of Saturn, of Jupiter, of Neptune up close, when you consider the depths of the Eagle Nebula or the journey of Halley's Comet through space, none of those realities make you go, eh, there's really nothing that magnificent or that glorious out there. There's really nothing that special about that. I mean, really, I haven't heard of any serious scientist that doesn't continually use the word miracle, glorious, awe-inspiring in regard to their discoveries or their observations. Sure, they don't all give credit to God. But that doesn't mean that we can't. Because, you see, we know Him. So let science do its job, and then let the Bible do its job. The Bible's job is not to do science. The Bible's job, according to the Bible, from John 20, 31, John writes, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The Bible's job, from 2 Timothy 3, 16, Paul writes, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the Bible's job. To teach us to trust in Jesus and to train us in righteousness. And it does it better than any other document in history. You see, what we have to remember about the Bible is that it was written at a specific time by a specific person in a specific language, for a specific reason, to specific people in that same language, in that same time. 
So in order for the Bible to have delivered its message to its intended original audience, it had to operate and speak within its audience's understanding of the world. Imagine for a moment what would have happened if 3,000 years ago, the author of Genesis would have begun his book with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was round. And it revolved around its own axis. It took uh, roughly 24 hours to get all the way around. And it actually orbited around this other big round star. And as it was spinning, when a face pointed to the start, well, that part he called day. And then when it spun around and it was not facing away from the sun, that part he called night. And he created a satellite that orbited around the earth. That he called the... I mean, if the guy would have started with that, he never would have gotten to the fact that humans were created in God's image. That the fall and the fact that ever since humanity has sinned God, God still enters into a covenant with them, still enters into pursuit of them, still showed His love and His faithfulness even in the face of humanity's rebellion. Which, by the way, is the real point of the first three chapters of Genesis. And this concern, that at least I was taught and I grew up with, that if you don't trust the factual accuracy of the Bible, well, then you won't be able to trust its theological and moral teaching either. It's just not, in my experience, just hasn't been true. There are plenty of people, both inside the scientific community and outside of it, that don't sign off on all the narrative details of the Bible and yet are fully committed to the inspired truth of its teachings. Because let's face it, the world is in the trouble it's in, not because people have a hard time believing that Noah's flood was a flood that actually covered the entire globe, or that they have, a trouble, they have trouble believing that Jonah was actually swallowed by a fish and actually lived underwater for three days. We're in the trouble that we're in because most of us don't believe for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. We're in the trouble we're in because we don't believe in love your neighbor as yourself. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. The one who wants to be great must be the servant of all. Go and sell all your possessions and follow me. That's what the Bible is about. That's what we need to trust and focus on. And when people come and try to leverage science to discredit our faith, just know that they are misusing science to do. Not, be, not everything that is called science is science. Just like not everything that is called faith is faith. Whether it's a celebrity scientist or a professor in a classroom, they can speak very eloquently on the realities of the material universe and the functioning of the cosmos. But when they start talking about God, they're stepping out of their field of observational and experimentable and predictable concepts and into a reality that is just much greater than them. But there is, I think, one charge. I think there is one accusation, though, uh, that 
the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson directs at those of us who believe in God, those of us who believe in, in his words, intelligent design. That I think, I think he has a point, and I think it's worth taking to heart. In the article I mentioned earlier, The Perimeter of Ignorance, and then again in uh, a talk he delivers in San Diego in 2006 at this Beyond Belief Symposium, uh, Tyson argues against a theistic view of intelligent design based on the fact that it is, in his words, a philosophy of ignorance. Basically, Tyson is saying that theists, people who believe in a God who created everything, simply use the term God to refer to whatever they either don't understand, haven't figured out, or simply just don't want to deal with. That God is essentially what we call the, intelligent, the intellectual junk drawer of our life. We figure that, well, you know, all of this had to come from somewhere. Uh, it didn't just appear out of nowhere. Um, so, there has to be a God. But as soon as we figure something out, as soon as we feel something is under our control, well, it all of a sudden slips out of the realm of being God and now comes into the realm of being us. And so God becomes someone either in the distant past or the distant future. He becomes either the responsible for, well, he's the one that got the universe started or he's the one that will be there when the universe ends. But essentially, he is irrelevant to our everyday life. And in this accusation, I think he has a point. Frankly, he challenged me when I listened to his speech. See, if our only reason for believing in God, if the only evidence we have of his existence is the fact that, well, something had to knock over the first domino in history, well, then it actually makes sense. That we get so defensive when someone comes along and suggests an alternative explanation for the origins of the universe. But if you you look at the stories of faith in the Bible, what you see is a faith that is based on an ongoing experience of the reality of God. Yes, The authors of Scripture regularly appeal to God as creator of everything. They regularly appeal to the works of God in the past. But in reality, they mostly write about God's present action in their lives and in the world around them. The people in Scripture don't believe in God simply because of what he did at the beginning of time. Although, you know, as Paul points out in Romans chapter 1, that should be enough. But the people in Scripture believe in God because of His ongoing presence in their life. He was their present help in times of trouble. Psalm 46 calls Him. It's like, just imagine for a second that you go up to our dear Pastor Mike. And you're going to try to prove to him that his dog Gus doesn't exist. And you go up and say, you know, I hear you talk so much about this dog, but I just hate to break it to you. Gus isn't real. And he says to you, yeah, he is. Here, 
And he shows you, look at this picture. That's Gus right there. And you smile. You're like, oh, that's adorable. I guess you haven't heard of Photoshop, right? That dog isn't, it's, he's been added in there. And he responds, no, no, no. I, seriously, Gus is real. I pick his poop up off my yard every day. I mean, something has to be pooping in my yard. It has to be Gus. <laughs> wow. I, I hate to break this to you, but really... Uh, That's not Gus. Your neighbor's been throwing his dog's poop over his fence for years now. And he's invented this whole story about this imaginary Gus dog so that you wouldn't find out that it's him. Now, if all Mike has to support his belief in his dog Gus are pictures and poop, well, you might actually get him to start to slightly doubt that Gus exists. I mean... But if you do actually get to have this conversation with it, which I seriously encourage you to do, to do so, and you actually get this far in the conversation, my guess is that at this point, Mike is not going to get all defensive and start calling you names. He's not going to start insisting on the inerrancy of his photography and the fact that the poop in his yard could have only come from Gus. My guess is that he'll just smile and say, well, (laughs) you can believe what you want. I know Gus is real, because I took a walk with him this morning. And you see, until our faith in God is based on real-time experience with him, we're going to be tossed around by every new scientific theory, every new scientific discovery or argument or idea, and that kind of faith, Well, it'll never come through a logical argument, through scientific deduction. It comes only if we pursue it. Only if we nurture it. Only if we open ourselves up to it. And when we do science, it ceases to become our enemy. It ceases to be a threat to our faith and actually serves to strengthen our love our admiration for God who would create such an amazing world. A world that God created not just to remind us of himself, but a world that God actually created to abide with us in it. Would you pray with me? So, Father, we just have to confess that so much of our life, you are simply a logical deduction. You are a conclusion that we arrive at for lack of other explanations. You are simply the catch-all for things that we feel are not under our control. God, we recognize that that kind of relationship is, well, it definitely doesn't support our faith. It doesn't make us know you better. It doesn't help us love you more. And it leaves us feeling empty and tossed around by every new teaching. So, God, we desperately want a present-day real experience with you.
We desperately want to know you in our lives. We want to learn how you are our present help in times of trouble. We want to learn to hear your voice. We want to learn to walk with you day by day, moment by moment, that you would be a present reality in our life. That way our worship will be real. Our faith will be alive. Our life would be filled with the presence of you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.